Sonic States. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Sonic Talk number 175. We are now. God, that's kind of not three quarters of the way, seven eighths of the way to 200. That feels like a bit of a milestone. Well, it is. It's quite good. <laughs> it I'm is impressed. So anyway, um, yes, uh, those of you who are listening live, welcome into the chat room. Uh, if, you, if you're not listening live and you'd like to listen next week when we do this again, it's 4pm uh, UK time, sonicstate.com forward slash live. There's a live stream which you can listen to us at, as it happens, or 20 seconds perhaps after, after it's uh, left our lips, and also chat with uh, all the other participants uh, in the chat room. So uh, let's introduce my guests first. Uh, first of all, um, Dave Spears, who's uh, come down to the studio. He's uh, actually in person. How are you doing, Dave? I'm all right, thank you. G4software.com. Dot com. Okay, well, Dave's come down for the day um, just to show me a few things and pick up his uh, Imposca 2 controller, which I've been had in my possession for a while, and I've seen it in action today. And also, he's got with him a good friend, I'm told. He's a good friend. Yeah, I'd say so. Andy Sherto, who is a front house engineer, proper one, you know, does big tours with buses and things. Private jets, buses. that sort of thing? So I've done the private jet thing on occasion, yeah. Nice. Uh, Darkness, Craig David, Mel B, Mel C? Mel C. Mel C, sorry, one of the old Spicers. Indeed. And um, a lot of orchestras, which sounds like it might be fun. Maybe we can talk to you a bit about that later. Absolutely. Have you got a URL or a book or anything you want to plug? No. Okay. I'm single at the moment, though, so if there's any attractive middle-aged women out there who'd like to be bored with audio knowledge, Do you know I'm what? Man. You're on the right podcast for that. Wicked. I wish I could say that all of our listeners were ladies, but uh, I know some of them are. Anyway, any of them. Any of them. No, 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 that's not true. We do, we do, we do get listeners. I do get, um, I do get f- some email from lady listeners as well, because every time I mention it, they go, no, no, I listen. So, you know, it's great. It's great that we can, we yeah, can mix all, it up. All women say that. Well, <laughs> and that other voice you heard there was Rich Hilton, who's fresh, I hope, or freshening rapidly, back from his uh, Tokyo trip, where uh, we spoke to him last time. He was just got back from the gig with Sheik, um, where he'd been on stage performing with Mr. Nile Rogers at the Tokyo Blue Note Club. Was that right? Uh, it's, all, it's all true. I think I got all those facts right. How are you feeling? Well, I think I've stopped. I've begun composing again and stopped decomposing. That's um, always good. I'm, I'm doing all right. Yeah, I feel good and uh, happy to be home and working and with my family. And uh, apparently we're going far away again very soon. So we'll see what that looks like. Uh, yeah, you're going back to Europe, aren't you? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, next week I think I'm going to Italy and then Ireland. Ooh. Nice. So, so that means uh, you'll get the, uh, the food and the ale experience. Indeed, in that order. <laughs> Excellent. So Noki and Guinness. A heady combination. No doubt. Well, first you'll have, you know, you've got your wine in Italy too, you know, and your olives and all that, and it'll be great. I'm looking forward to that part, yeah. That sounds great. Let's get started. Uh, to be honest, uh, probably one of the big pieces of news is uh, Rebirth has been launched on the iPhone. Uh, I've got it on the iPad here. I don't know if Dave would care to press play. Ready? As an intro. Go. Excellent. Now, uh, Rebirth, obviously, is an old piece of prop head software. And uh, I know Mark Tinley, who couldn't be with us this week, um, was just raving about it because he said he used to use it and it, had to, had, it used to struggle on his old Pentium. He couldn't kind of, you know, he was, he was pushing the envelope a little bit back when it first came out. 
Well, I, I just got a text from Mark who uh, said he can't be with us this week. Uh, he did send a couple of audio files, which I will uh, endeavour to pop into the edit. Hello, Sonic State. It's Mark Tinley here. I'm afraid I'm not able to make it to the call this week, but I really wanted to comment on Propellerhead's Rebirth for iPhone. Now, I remember using Rebirth on a Pentium 133 laptop probably not much more than 10 years ago and being really just taken by the fact that they could put a couple of 303s and an 808 and a 909 in software and it's sounding fairly authentic. Now I'm absolutely, completely, totally and utterly gobsmacked by the fact that I've got this application running in my telephone. I mean, it really, really, really is just totally amazing. And uh, the fact that I can drag and drop and send and thing and all that and put the stuff into the um, the desktop application and then bounce it out to web files and use it in my compositions as well. It's just like... What else is coming to iPhone, and when is it coming to iPhone? So uh, thanks, Mark, for, for chipping in, and hopefully we'll talk to you soon. And uh, it's the full Monty. It's got two 303 bass lines with uh, pattern sequencer, original acid and techno bass synth, unrivaled power, unmistakable sound. I'm really from PR here, obviously. Uh, there's an 808 drum machine and a 909, and you've got the song mode and the various effects, uh, in, including tempo, sync delay, distortion, compression, and special pattern control filter. And it's also... Uh, um, this comes with mods, so you can reskin it, and it can you can have your own cool version. I don't know. I've never really got understood the skinning thing. Oh, we were totally into that. Yeah, the mods. Yeah, the mods. Samples. You can put your own samples in there. You can do all sorts of things. Oh, can you what? Put your own some some decent drum sounds then. You used to be able to. All right. I wonder if you still can. Yeah, I reckon you probably can. Cool, but I mean, pretty amazing now when we think about it. I, I suppose this is uh, this has danger of turning into one of those. It's amazing what they can do with technology these days. But I mean, actually, this is more more about um, the fact that it can be done on a device like this. I mean, I just thought it would be impossible, but it's pretty astonishing. Rich, was it, were you ever a rebirth guy? I was, loved it, still do, and downloaded that thing this morning. Oh, really? Look you, forward to messing with it. Yeah, it I your- really enjoy it. It's fun. It's real good fun. And the funny thing about the it's amazing what they can do with technology these days is, in this case, it's amazingly what they could do with technology 14 years ago. <laughs> Was it that uh, long? Because it's really – the technological aspects of what this thing is doing is, are 14 years old, and essentially they've adapted it to run on this new platform. And it may have required even a full rewrite and everything, but the point is from the standpoint of user interfacing with the technology, it hasn't changed. In fact, they obviously haven't seen reason lately. Hmm. Uh, actually, but, uh, love it. that's uh, what you say about the interfacing not changing. I'd have to agree because it's a fiddly as hell, <laughs> particularly on an iPhone. Dave, you've got it on an iPhone, haven't you? Yeah, it is very fiddly, but it's just amazing to hear that demo tune again. It was. That's, <laughs> that's the one thing, John. Uh, that's the one thing um, that uh, Mark Tinley said is like, God, I can't believe it to hear that pattern. Yeah, the first default pattern when it sort of fires up again. Brilliant. Rebirth was pretty influential with us, I have to say. We, uh, when we did the Fat Boy, we had a couple of modes, which was, I think, for an AWE32 and Yamaha XG and Roland GS. And we took it to Manfred Rurup, who was Steinberg, who was our distributor at the time, and he said, and they were distributing Rebirth at the time, and he said, put another mode on there for Rebirth, and we will take X amount. Really? So we did. And that was it. It was pretty life-changing for us. Now, sticking a Fat Boy on this... <laughs> 
We should try that. Maybe we should get a MIDI interface and you could hook the fat boy up to the iPad and uh, get a decent interface that way. I've still got a couple that work. It'd be <laughs> quite funny. Really, I, I'm, I'm not sure, uh, Andy, your kind of background. Are you, are you a kind of music technologist at all? Or is no, this, not uh, really. In fact, on reading through the notes for this, uh, just pre this discussion, this this uh, cast. Um, I was thinking, come some of these parts of this conversation, I'm actually going to be the antichrist. <laughs> most of your listeners, um, but I think some of my points may be valid. Uh, no, these kind of things I always found very confusing. But um, I was originally a session bass player, and most of my studio enjoyment was gleaned from having relationships with other engineers and stuff. When methods of dropping in and out were very important because it was very difficult and suddenly with the advent of samplers and this kind of stuff that um, as an art form if you like and an experience kind of disappeared and I lost my enthusiasm for being in the studio at that point which is actually why I finished up being a live engineer well, that's kind of, yeah, that's going to the other end. I mean, it's the here and now and the actuality yeah. of it, isn't it? There's no kind of getting away from that. No, absolutely. But hence, um, I mm. have little to contribute because I'm still in no, the but it's, it is interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm just so not Mr. Pattern-Based Sequencer. I can't handle <coughs> pattern-based composition. It really just, it's too far removed from the performance aspect for me as well. Yeah. I just, I, I, I mean, I'll press the button and change a few patterns, but... I've had this a week or so, and I really can't be bothered to get in and edit anything. It used to be this thing where you went Apple R, and it would randomise the... Oh, really? Well, there's no Apple key on the uh, iPad. Uh, Where's it gone? There you go. It must be here somewhere. Anyway. So what's it cost? Five, five, seven bucks? Randomised. Randomised pattern. Oh, right, okay. So you could just use that, continually press that, and use use it for the, uh, the gig? Let's take it. Let's take it to another level and press randomise. I did a track with this, and not with this one, but the original, and exported it as a WAV and incorporated it into tracks and all sorts of stuff. I, I don't thought know. It was brilliant. I don't know whether you can do that with this. I'm assuming you might be able to. I, that, this just shows you how much de- in, how in depth I've gone on the onto this. Upload where though? To the v- <laughs> information super cul-de-sac, super highway. <laughs> right. Anyway. Rebirth iPhone, amazing. In fact, I'm actually speaking of iPhone apps. I've just finished the review of the Saitara uh, AC7 Pro door controller, which like a kind of virtual Mackie controller, that kind of thing. And uh, that was kind of fun. So better than I expected, and worse than I expected at the same time. But really, really oh, good yeah. for certain things. Anyway, you'll have to start. I'm going to. I think this is called a teaser. You'll have to go to the <laughs> site and view it. I'm not going to give too much away. So anyway, that's uh, Rebirth, available now. Uh, funnily enough, this is actually an iPhone app, So, you, but when you run it on an iPhone, the interface is so teeny tiny, that, but when you run it on an iP- iPad, because they released it, what, like last week or something, mm. when the iPad was out, and when you re- run it on an iPad, you have to double the graphics, so everything looks really blocky and kind of pixelated, which I suppose is kind of... Retro. That's quite retro, isn't it? I like, maybe, maybe that's what they were aiming for, but it just seems weird that they haven't done an iPad-specific version. We just hear that pattern one more time. There you go. That's enough. That's just seven. Uh, I wonder, did anybody, <laughs> did anybody actually ever make a record using the default pattern at Rebirth? There's a quiz Ooh. question for you, complete nerds out there. It's not like you know, in, in the same way as the Cassia tone and the uh, da, da, da da da. Yeah, we want a trio moment featuring Rebirth. I'm sure it must have. Anyway, that's kind of a bit random, isn't it? I did write a song on Rebirth. <laughs> well, yeah, I was going to say, I mean, I'm not familiar with it as a machine, obviously, for, uh, due to my previous statement, but uh, it sounds very familiar to me, I have to say. That's a Every time Dave hits it, but Acid then it's... Hits. 
Everybody needs a 303. Probably just reminds me of being around Dave's house. Now everybody can have a 303. Amazing. For seven bucks. The guy, Franz K, who did our our synth review, uh, and various other places I've seen, they they all say, God, it actually sounds really spot on. You know, they really know. It doesn't sound any different to the original version. And it's, you know, it's really... I mean, that's the one thing I have said about the iPad before as well, is they obviously haven't skimped on the... uh, D2As. They're not too bad at all, so you mm. get a decent sound out of it. Okie dokie. Right, uh, let me see. What's our next tale? The next tale is the cracking studio tale via Dave. And this is uh, from analogrules.com. And uh, this is the Bay Area Studio Engineering. I guess they're Mr. Fixits and Studio Installations, and they've been servicing analog equipment since 1981. Uh, and they've got a good selection of Ampex and MCI parts. I wonder if they do 3M machines it's as well. kind of how I found them, I have to say. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> nerding out, looking for some relays. I thought it would be quite nice to buy a really old analogue desk. <laughs> Maybe even a tape what? machine. Why? Just to annoy the missus, really. Yeah, but the thing is, this is what everybody said. Now, I, I've, I have... There's, well, you know Neil Perry, who's yeah. a brilliant uh, Mr. Fix. He says, what people don't realise is that when you buy into that, it's like an investment and in time. It doesn't just work, it just stops working periodically and you have to keep fixing it and just, you know, it's it's not a reliable thing. It's like an ongoing project that never ends. Yeah, no, I can completely understand that. And in fact, I changed my mind. When I came across this site, because I was reading this guy's thing and when I read this story it just made me laugh a lot well the story is basically uh, I'll, I'll, I'll try and um, make a synopsis of it uh, guy I worked with at CBS Records used to do this recording technique he was working with uh, Miss X the, um, she's very demanding and one of the greatest pop singers ever so he thought oh, I better better make sure I get this right so he took a split from the mic and he put uh two channels into compression, different types, two, three channels into different levels to tape so that there'd be a hot level, a medium level, so you wouldn't have to ride anything. So whatever happened, there'd be like five or six or seven tracks of vocals and one of them would probably not be broken at the worst case scenario. So uh, he, uh, he then records the vocals. She listens to playback and uh, unfortunately he plays back the compressed version. She freaks out after the first take, and, he, and uh, he chose the track with just a little compression, we played that back, and she says, she looked him in the face and said, no one puts compression on my voice when I record, ever. You're fired. Leave now. And he didn't have a chance to say, but I've got three uncompressed <laughs> versions here of your vocal. Let me play you one of those. He was shown the door and had to leave the session. That's stress, That's is the next amazing. line. I'd, so I'd say, tend to agree with that. I just thought it was brilliant that he'd covered his, all his bases. But we still were, got sacked. And still got sacked, yeah. But we were talking about this before the show, and uh, I, I think it was Andy, you were saying, you know, you you would, if you were getting fired like that anyway, you would take a moment to say, well, what have I got to lose? <laughs> I may as well just let her have it and say, listen, mate, I've done this, I've done that, you know, you you don't want to listen to one of the ones that is going to be fine, then that's your problem. At least, you know, what have you got to lose at that point? Rich, I suspect you might have had some kind of similar experience down the line, you know, or know of one. I'm not saying that you would uh, be, ever be fired, but uh, you know what I mean. I'm sure there's there's something in your library of experiences that might relate to this tale. I'm thinking. <laughs> <laughs> That's the no, sign of No, seriously, it. because I don't generally have a conversation with the singer about what I'm doing. No, I suppose yeah, I not. Think, I, I think, first, sorry if I'm cutting in. I think yeah, personally, ahead, Andy, my please. immediate response after, after hearing what you just said was, my immediate response in that kind of panic situation, I probably would have said, um, I don't know what you mean, there is no compression on that vocal. 
right uh, just, let them prove so, it and, uh, yeah you know go on <laughs> go on then if you think you know yeah, where is it actually there isn't any and the chances are you know in that client fader to use the term client fader situation uh, nine times out of ten they'll go oh sorry of course there isn't I can hear it now. I think that would have been my first response. My second response would have been, well, that's fine if that's your opinion, but there are another four, but unfortunately I'm not going to play them to you now because <laughs> I'm resigning too. Bye. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, I try not to do any of that. It's probably why you're working and I'm not. <laughs> no, 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 no. There's a thousand ways to get through this business. You know that. Yeah. Uh, the, um, it's... I, first of all, would not record five different versions of something. It's just of a single thing. For it, molting the input audio is far more egregious to me yeah. than any of what's going to happen after I only record one of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to molt input. <laughs> God, no. In a patch bay? Thank you, but no. Um, if you're going to bus it multiple ways, then I guess, all right, you can make the argument that at least you've got proper gain structuring going on somewhere but but uh i don't have these conversations with the artist their vocal sounds fine <laughs> and i'm not bragging about that i'm just saying it's like they there's it's uh they should be focused on what they're doing you know what i like it's, I, I, I would never actually say i'll tell you what i won't tell you how to sing if you don't tell me how to record mm. but there's definitely that voice in the back of my head going come on this isn't you at your best what you should be focused on is what you're doing and what I should be focused on and what I'm doing. And we're both professionals doing the best we can here. And uh, if I'm the worst you ever see, it'll be a pretty, you know, decent existence for mm. you guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe she was nervous. You know, there could have been a lot. Maybe she, I, I suspect that she wasn't sure about the song or the key. Well, uh, I would suspect that she wasn't sure about her own performance, giving, uh, hence giving rise to um, a defensive attitude on arrival in the control room. But yeah. if she heard compression on it, well, she said, and it was did. moderate compression. Wouldn't compress her if it. Um, yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> are, are you, do you know who, you're, who we're talking about here, Rich? No, but there's uh, yeah, <laughs> half a chance I've recorded her. And, <laughs> no, I'm any, serious. Any, any one of a number. <laughs> and um, and it's I don't know. You just it is an emotional thing here. There's a certain level of confidence issue that precedes any discussion she's going to have with the engineer about what he's doing. So she's already somehow unconfident about either what he's doing or where she is or what she's <laughs> doing or the driver on the way over or who knows what. But something has brought a level of insecurity into the creative moment there that leads to this unfortunate kind of situation where she is not at her best, whoever she is or he is. Um, and she's participating in an aspect of the process that doesn't contribute to her doing a better job. Yeah, there's a great uh, quote here from Asia Head. Um, okay, babe, no compression, no auto-tune either. See if you're still so good. <laughs> <laughs> good call. Uh, you hold the auto tune hostage. You have that's a, right. Auto-tune in your left I'm, hand and a gun. To yeah. You hold the yeah. You've got the you've got the uh, dongle in one hand and you just go. I'm off. Yeah. One more <laughs> comment and the auto tune gets it. Yeah. Um, right. I, I would. I would. Yeah. I would say having been in those situations uh, in in a, in a different sort of way. Uh, there has to be an element of insecurity coming in because somebody at that level who is that confident, who who would know whether a compressor was on a voice or not, would also know that the person she'd been given to record her, you know, the, the five previous candidates were um, beheaded for not being good enough before, you know, they, these people are vetted out before they get anywhere near such artists. So 
you know, in my experience, anybody in that situation wouldn't be questioning <coughs> your judgment. No, that's a good point. On, right. on what you'd, you know, because, because you wouldn't, they'd sack somebody else. They'd sack the person who hired you rather than sack you. Just maybe they did both. Maybe they did both. Maybe they did both. Maybe they everybody else and there's nobody left. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a, that's a good point. I mean, because live, I mean, most most of the time, when I, I can remember, because I did quite a lot of sound mm-hmm. engineering as well live, you know, and you're working with an artist, and, you know, generally you get the gig because you're capable and you learn to yeah. deal with their anxiety. Mm. And if you can put them at ease, then it makes them happy. It makes that's everybody generally happy. these days why I'm employed, is, is to put those people at ease. Yeah. So to have oh, them right. then to have them then question what I'd done would be just seem a little strange to me. Yeah. But at that moment, you, I'm sure, as I would, would be very patient in the explanation of exactly what Indeed. you're doing. Yeah. Because all it's about at that moment is settling whatever insecurity they've got that will somehow stand between them and delivering the performance that pays all of our bills agreed yeah and so you would you would be kind about it you wouldn't uh, well, i would try and see up. why they were feeling insecure and and reassure them i guess yeah right right well, you, you could um, well, as you were saying about saying there is no compression you'd sort of then at that point say well actually maybe the monitoring's not right can we maybe do something uh, yeah, that makes maybe, you feel yeah, she, the attention she had actually just come into the control room to listen to it so perhaps that wouldn't work but well, yeah uh, something well like that. possibly but then a quick you know if i was thinking quick enough in that kind of situation i'd say sorry i, I there's a compressor on the playback channel i'll just pop it off yeah and while i was popping it off i would change the selected track that i was playing into the one without the compression but, you know, there are a million ways, as, yeah. as the other chap was saying, to divert that and rectify it calmly and quietly without, you know, pointing the finger anywhere. And, yeah, and then dine out on the story for years to and come. exactly <laughs> as uh, I am, in fact, now doing. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, no, I just thought it was an interesting tale. That's an interesting site. Is there a bunch? I couldn't find any other tips. They did seem kind of quite secretly... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I found a couple that were secretly hidden. It's brilliant. He just puts the pages up but doesn't link to them from anywhere. Yeah, I think they're obviously sort of linked to on rotational bases. There was there was a few good ones. I quite like the idea of covering your bases and having five versions of everything for me. That just sort of made sense. It makes sense with tape, but maybe not so much now. Sorry, uh, Andy. Uh, No, I was merely going to say I did come across not the same but a similar or or tangibly similar thing with uh, a fresh monitor guy on a very important show who um, had a slightly dodgy but lovely analogue desk, and it was his first day, and uh, he, sure as um, to be expected, the vocal channel went down on the monitor board. But the change was seamless because this chap had, uh, like the chap in your story, had preempted not only what shall I do in a disaster, but let's do it first. So he Y-split the channel twice, so he had three of the same channel copied mm-hmm. everything and just left them there with the left right select button out or, or the in. or the monitor channel yeah the the mute button and just popped it in when channel one went down now i thought as i said to on reading this story today that's very clever i would have done that the second time i came across this <laughs> once already that's how i would have come up with the idea but the people who think of these things first you know that, that's why they're on the big box sometimes and i think it's you know it's clever i wouldn't have thought of that i would have had to have had the failure before coming up with the solution it's interesting isn't it that um monitor engineers seem to get Get, get gone through a lot more so than uh, oh, than yes. front of house. I, They're closer in the firing range. Well, and also, it's hard to throw a pint of beer at a front of house guy on an arena gig, but a monitor guy is only twenty feet away from you. <laughs> and also, it's hard to hear uh, what the front of house guy is doing. Absolutely, we get. Well, that's why I'm at the front. 
Have they, they, I mean, the times, and this is not, I'm, I'm not having to go at artists here, but people will say to me, especially the first couple of times they work with me, uh, how did it sound out front? And my, my first answer with them all is, oh, it was dreadful, so I just went for a drink. <laughs> I mean, how do you think it sounded? You're paying me a fortune to do this. I come with a lot of recommendation. What do you expect me to say? Even if it was awful, I'm still going to tell you it was great. Oh, it was great, but your performance was yeah, awful. Yeah, you sorted it, you know. Had to compress your vocal, but yeah. apart from that, you know. <laughs> I think you need to rehearse more. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, as soon as they think they know anything about what it sounded like out in front, you know who you're dealing with. Yeah. Well, actually, that's one of the problems, isn't it, now? Because uh, the whole deal with the DigiDesign venue system... I don't know if you use those at all, because you can record yeah. the gig yeah, and yeah, then yeah. play yeah. it back for them. Sure, but again, uh, that doesn't work anyway, because unless you play them it back in the same room through the same PA system... Yeah, exactly. after the pubs are shut. Yeah, it's not going to work, you know. You know listening to it on headphones is not what you're doing as a live engineer. You, you're making a sum, or, or in my opinion, you should be making a sum of what the room, the noise the room is making with the noise that you put into it from the speakers. So to listen to that mix in isolation through a pair of headphones is irrelevant in my... You have to put it through a pair of speakers in the room because the room itself is a speaker. Oh, yeah, but that not that the, the thing that they were doing? So you would... Uh the band would be on stage, the singer would come out front, you just oh, flip see. the input, you so, them, so you play, play the singer's oh, channel. In that instance, yes, I thought yeah. you meant listening to it afterwards. Yeah, oh no, that, well, yeah, that can't, that's, that's a bit more tri- tricky, but, because uh, I remember we talked about this before, because I did a whole piece with the uh, venue guys, there was the, I forget the name of the chap, um, quite a sort of name, a name front of house guy, I think he did a lot of stuff for Simply Red, that kind of thing, Scottish bloke, mm. and he was telling me that, you know, all of this stuff Robbie was just, McGraw, would it might have been, yeah, it was just mind-blowing, because he could then have, the art, the talent would come out front and listen to the band playing and himself singing because they were playing along with yeah, sure. what was on the tape. And because you get the input match, you can flip yeah, it. Yeah, and he just said it was amazing because these people just, their confidence increases so much because mm-hmm. they know that front of house is going to sound good. For the first time ever, yeah, in that situation yeah. for the first time ever, certainly. The other advantage, of course, is that you can sound check uh, today's gig with yesterday's sound check. Yeah. while the band is still on the private uh-huh. jet doing unsightly yeah. things. Working. Or <laughs> yeah, yeah, working very hard, obviously. Doing promotion. Preparing my sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's a fascinating. Thank you very much for that input. Right, I, I think we'll move on to the next topic, which uh, requires a clip playing. So I'm just going to fire the clip off. Okay, my name's Steve Mann. And we're at the Fontaine Hydrolophone Lab. I'm a professor at University of Toronto, and also I'm an inventor, and I invent various kinds of things. So this is a hydrolophone, like we have in, in public parks and spaces like that. So you play it by covering up the finger holes. So if, it, if you block it just a little bit, tends to go flatter and darker and as you come towards the center it it sounds a little bit brighter and sharper so it's a microtonal instrument it gives you a lot of expression it's kind of like a violin like bowing a violin that was uh oh let me see i write steve mann who's um the possibly the world's most preeminent hydrolophonist (laughs) <laughs> and, uh, I, which I thought was worthy of a mention because obviously you don't get many of those. <laughs> but this was an interesting instrument. It sounds kind of wacky and weird and everything, but you could see the joy in everybody's face when they actually got to play it. What it essentially is, is uh, 
it's like a pipe organ or a, a, a that's usually fired by air, but it's fired with water. So you you sort of interrupt jets of water and put your finger over the hole, and the notes play. And um, there's some there were some great examples of it in there. There was the one the ones that in like kids parks, so kids can play with them. And there's also one which I particularly like that was actually built into an outside jacuzzi. Cool. <laughs> one for the Californian celebrity, perhaps that one. <laughs> but um. They were just. They, I just thought it was really kind of quite sweet in a way, and did sound quite nice in this sort of pipe organy. Um, well, not pipe organy. What's those ones? That, is it Calliope? No, forget that. I'll edit that out because <laughs> I'll sound more knowledgeable afterwards. <laughs> Rich, would you like yes. one in your garden? Oh, it might be fun. I'd really like to see Pat Metheny control one on Sunday night when I go see him play. Are oh, you going to go and see ah, the orchestra on? Yeah, and it would be great. Wouldn't it be great if you had like sort of this fountain on one side of the stage that was this thing and some kind of solenoid-driven thing playing it? It would be fantastic. It's just the, the the kind of electronics and jets of water thing that I'm kind of clenching slightly at the thought of. <laughs> but, <laughs> I suppose. But yeah. I, no. I enjoyed it. It was It's clever. It's fun. It's cool. Um, yeah, he is the preeminent. <laughs> it's funny, the preeminent hydrophone. You, you don't need a mist or whatever. Yeah, it's pretty hard to say, isn't it? <laughs> it's funny. It's just because I've been kidding. My son Corey's about to go with his high school band to Toronto to play in the percussion section of his, uh, you know, symphonic band from school, and uh, it's all well and good and everything. But he's going there. He's going to play castanets. <laughs> so I, I was joking with the band director that he's going to help turn my son into an internationally acclaimed castanet star. Castanetist. Yes. So, like Rich, that. what are the finest castanets money can buy? I don't know, but I keep asking him if he's got a fur-lined case for them. <laughs> well, there's something quite seedy about the thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> but the whole thing is hilarious to me. But uh, And, of course, it's costing no small penny either. So it's like I, I just keep kidding my son about castanets. <laughs> is there a flight case you can get for the castanets? I could just like the idea of maybe turning up with the, the, the fur-lined case and you open it and there's a whole selection of them all tuned. And you get, you get the ebony ones, the, uh, the, the other hard. <laughs> Words, maybe pine for a sort of certain kinds of gig for the soft crowd yeah that's so right ivory you know like a <laughs> free cbs free cbs castanets before Berlin bought them dead castanets for miming <laughs> left-handed ones right-handed ones yeah silent ones for practice <laughs> midi castanets, midi castanets. <laughs> then maybe there's an iphone app for uh castanets i know you can just sort of shake but they wouldn't be as good as the analog ones. I know the hydrophones much more, much more enjoyable. But what was really good about this is he also was saying that they use it quite a lot in uh, therapy, therapy sort of with people who uh, can't see or perhaps can't hear so well. And they said they get a really good sort of they get something really great out of it because it's it's easy to play, but it, yet it's actually quite expressive and just sounds really nice. I think the nice thing about about the idea is, uh, I mean, as we all know, music has therapeutic properties. I recently have begun to play again in, in, in a half an hour every morning when I get out of bed because I've just found it makes me it sets me up for the day and it makes me feel better somehow inside. Uh, but this, the thing that I picked up on with this instrument is not only are you getting the musical thing, but you will actually be feeling it through your fingers at the same time. And that, I think, that for me, I mean, I guess like uh, like an acoustic guitar or a double bass, where you're actually feeling the vibration of the mm, thing going. Yeah, through yeah, the yeah. I think I think that's a cute thing. Uh, yeah. uh, to be able to do. 
and I think that, that it did resonate in a different way than air resonates. Yeah, it sounded richer and deeper, and um, I don't know. There was almost—I'm I'm almost on the verge of saying it's more analog than an air organ. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? The, the, but there's something more physical about the movement because it's a more solid matter. I can't imagine what happens to your hands after you've practiced in it on a oh, day. I mean, you just know. end up with prune fingers, wouldn't prune you? Prune fingers. They'd be. I mean, because well, I mean, I guess if you play, I, I guess if well, prune fingers might prune actually fingers. be the title of the uh, yeah, <laughs> the first album and the podcast. Perhaps Let's not ponder the seven inch. <laughs> I think the connection between you know the the reason people like water and all of that kind of stuff, the pontification about we crawled out of it in the first place, and, and the importance that music. Uh, has from a harmonic resonance point of view, the, the, the joining of those two things, I think, is is quite an interesting thing. I, I, yeah, therapeutically yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and sort of. I'd like to play one. It looks like it would be nice. To I play, immediately it? wanted to play one. I mm. still want to play one, and I'll be looking for one in every European country that I go to now. Every time I'd say, I what do you think the best bet? <laughs> Barcelona. It's got to be a good chance. Barcelona's probably a good bet. Yeah, Amsterdam. Um, Somewhere in Scandinavia. Somewhere in Scandinavia, that probably will be in a jacuzzi. And people, <laughs> to, to, to fall to a really cheap joke, people will be using it to make beautiful music in the mountains, I'm sure. Yeah, you wouldn't want to pee in the pool. That's, you wouldn't uh, want to pee in the say. pool, yeah, that could flatten your uh, major chords to some degree. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Uh, that was on the Motherboard series, which is really good. It seems to be sponsored by Dell. It's the Sound Builders series, but on Motherboard TV, and uh, they've had loads of really good stuff there. Actually, they did uh, some some things with, uh, I think they did some stuff with Bob Moog and various other people. They've got, always got some good sort of creative, interesting technology and creativity clips. So uh, check them out. I'll put the link in the show notes. The one that runs on beer, says Shane King. That's a great That's idea. That's a very good idea. <laughs> yeah. And Rich, I forgot to mention um, that obviously you wouldn't be an iPhone app. It would have to be a clamshell phone for the uh, Virtual Castanets oh. application. <laughs> that also came in via the uh, via the chat room, but it's gone past and I can't remember who said it. So sorry for not credit. I'll take all the credit for that if you don't mind. <laughs> um, I suppose I've got to do an ad. It's about that time. So I want to say thank you very much to the show sponsor. Obviously, Yamaha.co.uk are the show sponsor, and we'd like to say thank you for their continued support, and want to bring your attention to their very own podcast. The Yamaha Download podcast covers all aspects of music performance, creation, production, including interviews with artists and latest product news, all that sort of thing. Um, It's produced by and uh, presented by a chap called Richard Allenson, who's probably got the most radio voice of anybody I've ever heard. Uh, Very, very nicely done. Uh, There's some uh, CP5 and CP Piano demos from Martina. There's also uh, a demo and uh, a chat about the new Yamaha DTX90 electronic kit and the drummer Andy Fissenden uses it. Uh, he plays with Sugar Babes, Pipsy, Pixie Lot and various other luminaries. Uh, there's a great photo of the Sugar Babes actually on the website but uh, you'll have to go and check it out so that's a little teaser for you there. Um, and also a bit about the Super BB bass and uh, the Billy Sheen bass clinic tour and if you're going to go head over to uh, yamahadownload.co.uk there's also a lot of other stuff in there so besides there's lots of news stories there there's a Cubase A4 installation guide including the latest news on the Steve Gad uh, Mission from Gad drum clinic which was cancelled because of the <laughs> volcanic ash debacle that's been happening I think it's been rescheduled you can find out the dates again so once again just go and check out sonicstate.com forward slash Yamaha there's links to all of those uh, uh, assets there and also if you use that then they'll know where you came from everybody's happy then but once again we do thank Yamaha very much for the sponsorship of the show for me within Porter's Head even though we make the rules up we have specific rules and um, I think writing music for film we're very outside of those boundaries so it carries on and it you know ultimately gets quite like 
my special place in filming scene. There's a freedom there. That you're not constrained by the three and a half minute pop song. You're not constrained by the concert platform. It's a kind of Trojan horse. You can wheel all sorts of things in there, and people will kind of not notice what what you've done. That was a clip from the little film that uh, sort of was going around the making of the soundtrack, uh, which was of The Passion of Joan of Arc, which is a 1928 film uh, by Carl Theodore Dreyer. Uh, it was a French film. I think it was French. Anyway, black and white. Uh, amazing, actually. I went along to see this. What it was was uh, Will Gregory and Adrian Utley put together a soundtrack to play along with this uh, black and white silent classic. It's, uh, and they got a reprint. Uh, well, it was, and I think it was one of the original prints. Uh, so Cellulose stuck a massive great projector in the, the Colston Hall and then had this ensemble on stage that played along with it. There was no sync or anything, so there was six guitars, uh, Will playing saxophone. He also had, uh, for a bit of technology spotting, he had a Roland SH-09, which sounded fantastic. It was the opening bass sound. There was a Korg string machine. Do you remember what that's called? PSC. PE, something or other, One, yeah. For, 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 and uh, two percussionists, including Timps, which sounded brilliant. An eight-piece vocal ensemble. Uh, I think there were eight brass players as well. And it was all conducted by Charles Hazelwood. Um, and it was brilliant because above, uh, unfortunately we couldn't take any photos, above, th- this film is, there's lots and lots of very, very intense close-ups of Joan of Arc, the trial of Joan of Arc, because essentially the story was uh, they found a transcript of the original trial of Joan of Arc uh, and they made the film based on the information that was in there. So the things that she was reported to say in the subtitles were things that she said while she was trying to be hoodwinked by the uh, the... Catholic priests, I think it was. I, I, I don't know the story behind Joan of Arc, but the, this whole thing was about the film. But it, it, it was just a really interesting musical project. I also bumped into Tara Bush, who came up from Cardiff there. Uh, it was nice to say hello to her. So, hello, Tara, if you're listening to the show as well. What I really wanted, I, I, I thought it might be interesting to discuss, you know, it, it's such an unusual musical project. I wondered, you know, what other, what most sort of interesting or difficult musical experience that was sort of completely outside of the box have you had to, uh, had to, had to work on? And uh, maybe start that with Dave, who's looking like he hasn't got an answer. I haven't got a clue. <laughs> yeah, no. Weird uh, though, because Will and they just do this brilliant stuff. I think if I was ever anxious, I'd just like to be put in a room with those two, because their voices are sort of very calm and relaxing, aren't they? Yeah, they don't seem stressed. You've worked with him loads. So Will, Will doesn't get stressed. No, no Will doesn't get it. stressed. Will is like a zen. Yeah. It's just sort of... I get that feeling. There's, just, there's never any real urgency. So, it, urgency, I think perhaps we'd better move on, is about as urgent as it ever gets, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but he does some great stuff. I mean, I've repeated it a million times, and I've always said I was going to rip it off that monosynth ensemble that he did all those years ago. Yeah, well, I, I think just that's where I first met you in person, wasn't it? Yeah, or not so. far yeah, off. Probably. I mean, I just thought it was a really inspired idea. Everybody came away from that grinning. This doesn't look like, like quite so much of a grinner. No, I have to say it's one of the most harrowing films I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> but not through... I mean, there, there is one scene in particular where she's, be, she's being tried and they're trying to basically get her to admit to heresy so that they can stop her from being a martyr. She's got a fever, so they bloodlet, and there's a shot of somebody having Ooh, a nice. bloody great knife stuck in their arm and blood pouring, you know, per- pumping out. They, you can't see her face, but we think in 1928, probably quite a lot of poor people who'd be prepared <laughs> to 
just to have that just for a few quid and it was real i mean i'm sure that was real because you wouldn't have prosthetics and stuff so anyway that yeah. but generally there's a but lot of the actual scene in the film was a real arm was a real arm yeah. with real blood and everything mm. Mm. but it's quite harrowing just purely because you know she she's in this kind of like beatific uh religious trance almost and you know and there's lots of shots of her looking up in like you know like some sort of deity it's quite but yeah. but it's very very harrowing because ultimately she pays the price and gets burnt at the stake and then you know it's all a bit grim but the music was a bit more uplifting than that so because I, I think they go if you watch that film on youtube they they actually say later on you know if we followed the pathos of the whole film all the way through it would just be like whack <laughs> it would just be too much so we've tried to kind of create fine fine moments of sort of up and try and introduce those and, and what have you but it just sounded it's a really interesting project and I, I was talking to one of the guys in the band stig who was one of the guitarists who was absolutely terrified before the gig because he'd never done a gig re- sight reading and there was lots of kind of time changes because it was like a classical piece you know lots and lots of stuff that sort of musical project i've never had to do anything that's quite so terrifyingly different you know and feel capable you know i mean i my automatically reaction to something like that would be no i can't sorry I'm i know somebody who can though <laughs> i'm interested i've done a couple of th- or a couple of things spring to mind that are similar uh i would be interested to find to discover whether they whether whether was the film um viewable to the musicians while they were playing although they weren't synced up to it were they actually watching what they were playing to. No, the conductor, was the, con- the, the conductor was, was watching. And it's composed, I presume, in, in some kind of time scale to match yes. up with the film. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think he would, he would kind of bring yeah, it... Yeah, uh, bring it, bring it, bring it in. into shape. Uh, the two things that, that spring to my mind, one was, uh, is it the Sputnik Orchestra that Thomas Dolby has, where they all play theremins? Um, I did a short tour with him. The support act was the Sputnik Orchestra. I didn't realise that it was him and the nephew of Mr Theremin, Okay. Was playing was the, was the lead uh, theremin player, and they were doing a piece like a freeform piece similar to that to a black and white film of the Sputnik landing, ah. which was a similar kind of thing. Um, and the other thing that springs to mind is Andrew Lloyd Webber at one of the orchestra things I did, sort of tea in the park thing. Uh, did flight of the swan? Would it be to a glider display? Neither, oh, right, okay. The glider person couldn't hear the music and. Lloyd Webber couldn't see the glider because it was above. <laughs> it was above the stage. Wow. Uh, however, Oops. it worked immaculately. <coughs> if you looked and listened, it <clears throat> it was either because the, the the form of the piece of music wasn't regimented into blocks. Yeah, that's so the trick, worked. I think. Yeah, um, but it was very graceful and very beautiful, and both things uh, the the it was very symbiotic. Both things enhanced each other. Um, now I've also done recording jobs where we wanted something for the beginning of one particular track which finished up being tuning in a radio so there's lots of air noise and then you suddenly land on a bit of commentary if you listen to music in the house and put the TV on and turn the sound down 60% of it matches up yeah, and it, a lot it, of it looks pretty good if, if you think actually I wish I'd taken that for a video a lot of it works really nicely yeah uh, so, I, although I think they are very... It's the, it's the Philip Glass effect, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think there's, a, there's an element of 50% of it's going to work anyway. So, although I think they are kind of, not dangerous projects, but kind of outlandish projects, They're there's an safe. element of, there's a fairly element, a large element of safety in there, yeah, depending on how you're dealing with it. But I don't think that decries from it. I actually like that kind of spontaneous creativity because it also gives the viewer and the listener a chance, like when you read a book, 
to fill in a lot of the holes yourself. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, the the, the thing about this is also that what's amazing is that was it. It was yeah. a one-off, and I like that yeah. happening. But I think I, I think also yeah. because I mean because all of that work went together. I mean I, I presume somebody filmed it somewhere. But I think they there were also people from other film festivals who may bring the bring it together again for mm. you know I, I don't know where, wherever they are you know in the world there might be a, a few more of those and i can thoroughly recommend anybody to go and see it not only because the music's great and the whole experience is great but the film is worth watching as an original print i mean you're talking like a 40 foot screen there yeah with this really heavy duty kind of it's all close up of faces yeah, and yeah. all of the faces none of them got makeup and they all all the all the priests look like Eli Wallach <laughs> you know they've got those kind of craggy kind of they're amazing faces well, I mean he must have had a great fun cast to get this guy I think the fun a fun thing to do with that I mean taking what you've just said would be there's a, a, a smallish medium sized gig in uh, I forget the name of the northern town it's where they shoot Last of the Summer Wine but the gig's called the Picture House, and it's the first Picture House to ever run in England. Uh, and it's still the same building. And mm. I think to see a piece of film like that in, in one of those buildings, yeah. on one of those screens, would be uh, an amazing experience. Yeah, yeah. How about you then, Rich? Have you, uh, have you had any kind of extremely challenging musical happenings where you've really had to kind of, you know, get outside of your comfort zone or perhaps seen that sort of thing yourself? Well, I've participated in quite a few. Because over the years, we do this um, gala each year for uh, Niles Foundation, and it always involves guest artists. So there's, And then in 1990, we had a television show on VH1 called New Visions, where he was the host and I was the musical director, and we had different artists coming through every week. So there's been a lot of my own professional life wrapped up in those kinds of moments where you either bring people together or have combinations of people playing that would never have played before uh-huh. or since but the ones i'd rather talk about are not the ones i did but the ones i saw and one of them well one of them is going to be this Nathaney show on sunday night really to me it's yeah. a one-off he's not he can't possibly tour this machine very long i suppose i was just saying to my son the other day I suppose every morning's breakfast on this tour is wrapped up in what do we have to repair tonight and what do we need to remap around what doesn't work today? You know, because when you have a mechanical device of that size to haul around and make work in venue after venue, it's got to be an unbelievable challenge uh, from that standpoint. So I would count the Metheny gig, and I and I just downloaded a uh, recording of a previous show on the tour so I could get a sense for what it's going to be like and. It's, it sounds very interesting to me. I think it's going to be a good evening. But the one I want to talk about uh, occurred in 1978 in Ithaca, New York. And it involved Mother Mallard's portable masterpiece. Hey, hey. <laughs> we talked about them a couple of weeks ago. Last we? week. Well, yeah, they're my uh, – they, you know, I went to college in Ithaca and they were, bi- they were Ithaca-based. David Borden was, a, uh, I believe, a teacher at Cornell. But, um, and the, uh, the original Moog Trio – which included a guy called Chris Swanson and some other people, one of whom was my music history teacher at the college. So I was kind of peripherally aware of them. And there was, there's this history. I mean, I used to drive by a house in Trumansburg that had a mailbox that said Moog on it. Yeah, Whoa, did you get oh, that photo? Um, I never took a picture of it. But I used to drive by it all the time. And I saw Moog speak at Cornell when I was in college and such. But anyway... There was a band in town in Ithaca at the time called the Zobo Fun Band. And it was a remarkable band that played pretty much nothing but original music. 
Um, it had some remarkable players, one or two of which have gone on to some degree of notoriety in the business, and, and pretty much all of whom have continued in some fashion in the business, one of whom, uh, one of the major songwriters actually has since passed away. But anyway, they were huge at the time, and it was a sort of combination of, of fusion-y jazz with balladeer songwriting with Grateful Dead kind of jam sections, and it was really, and they had this enormous following of people who would dance very freely, and it was a very sort of specific local happening kind of scene that was going on. And then separately from that, you had this Mother Mallard, you know, guys with big Moog modular rigs playing this David Borden music, which was much more along the lines of the historical Philip Glass, Teddy Riley kind of uh-huh. thing that had led up to that point. And then there came to be a concert at the Strand Theater in Ithaca at which both groups played separately and together. And when they played together, it was one of the most magnificent sounds I've ever heard in my whole life. I mean, Zobo on its own was pretty magnificent, and so was Mother Mallard. But when they arranged pieces for the two groups, it was just a stunning thing. For 1978, to have three guys up there with modular Moogs and this six-piece incredible band of musicians all playing this special original music, it was... It was one of those moments. Wow, that sounds great. I'm just recalling, I, I think I've got a, uh, one, uh, one other one, and that was um, when Jane was pregnant with our daughter, uh, they put on a show in... Uh, <laughs> sorry, I was just trying reaching for the cough button. <laughs> they put on a show in the park, um, and it was, it was by this um, mega millionaire who, who just bought West, one of our local water authority companies or whatever. Anyway, and he put on the three tenors. So we had a whole lot, the Pavarotti, the, I forget the name of them all now, but those three, Domingo and the fat bloke. Oh no, fat bloke was Pavarotti, wasn't it? And another one. And they did the show and they had the BBC Light Philharmonic Orchestra as well. And then they did this whole thing. It was very cheesy and they, they just did all these classics and what have you. And then, then it was so big that there was a, there was a stage in one part of the park and in the other part of the park they just had this massive uh, Diamond Vision screen with a big speaker system. And we all walked in and we were watching it and then at the end they had this massive, I mean, I mean absolutely enormous firework display in time with, I think it was the 1812 Overture or something wow. at the end. And everybody was just, and it was a really <laughs> hot August evening and it was just awesome and then at the end of it pretty much it was pretty much the whole of the inhabitants of bath were all walking back to their various houses so we walked back to our house alongside several hundred or several thousand other people all sharing in the experience and that was one of the most amazing musical things i've ever seen because you know i mean, the three tenors and it's all very light and everything and you just think yeah whatever but when you see the power of that stuff actually happening and when it's done right which it was done then i think there's a dvd of it now uh, you can get a dvd of it it was absolutely incredible i mean not experimental or anything apart from maybe the fact that it was outside but you're probably going to tell me you mixed that now aren't you no i was i was thinking wondering whether i had done but i didn't know <laughs> i'd like to think it was something that you'd remember but that's the one thing i can think of but there's you know there aren't very that, many uh, of them the, are there the other thing that i was thinking about that as you were describing it is i mean everybody on the orchestra run d- does the fireworks in time it's incredibly difficult to get it in time and if you do see it in time it's an incredible thing i was sound checking somebody the other day in a small club uh in fact the water rats in london a uh, girl at a piano doing solo stuff um and it, it was great it sounded great in the room it was lovely it was the afternoon and then just before the end of the sound check the lighting guy just switched the house lights out and did a quick wash on the stage and i actually turned around to him and said it immediately sounds better. 
and it just did. It, because it, of the atmosphere. Just, just because of the atmosphere and... And, you know, that kind of thing does make a massive difference. And I think, not to, although this is my only field of experience, not to keep dragging it back to the live engineer thing, but people forget how important the surroundings are when you listen to audio, I think, sometimes. And they are terribly important. Yeah, and that's something you, you can't really... I mean, I suppose that's, in some ways, you know, that's why there are moments in time when we have listened to records, you know, maybe we were a little bit out of it, or maybe yeah, yeah, it was yeah, a definitely. magical night or whatever, mm. that have really strong and powerful emotional resonances with us that yeah. that we can recall again and again and again every time we listen to that. And it's not something that you get every time you do it. So it, no, those, it's not. those moments are quite special. Mud at Henley Town Hall. Mud? No, no I'm tiger feet. joking, God. <laughs> That's the um, antithesis of a happening. I once won a prize at an RAF disco <laughs> at Christmas that I was staying with some friends of my mum and dad's, uh, and uh, there was a quiz, and uh, they played the intro to Tiger Feet, and I put my hand up and got it right, and I won something. I can't remember. <laughs> oh, might have been a record token or something. We were allowed to leave. <laughs> it wasn't actually a magical mo- musical moment, that, but I just thought it was, it was pertinent to mention. The mud reference. <laughs> I thought you were going to say you did tiger feet and won a prize no well didn't the bloke who wrote tiger feet also write uh, oh, the Kylie thing. les gray is it les gray no, no. Les was a singer from les gray was the singer from mud the pretty one from mud no Rhodes. we're getting kylie's no. big yeah he's hit. one of the he's big uh, i don't uh, my, Stay, i just can't get you something with kathy dennis there. with kathy dennis that's right yeah well lots there you of go, people descending did. into the realm yeah, yeah no no i remember <laughs> anyway some who never went to jail for litigious but we're not here to tell those stories no. are we? well well perhaps we are but you know is there an after nine version of this program that i could star in it depends when you're listening to it you see it's a podcast that's the of beauty course, of it yeah. you can listen to it whenever you like so the listeners there is discretion. a sort of there's a listener's discretion watershed so if you are, yeah. if you feel easily offended then just <laughs> listen to it after nine o'clock if you feel easily offended just and, it's, and also it all it's always after nine isn't it really well, of course somewhere it just depends if you live in a 24-hour society or even a 48-hour. Um, we're well off the beaten track here. We are, yes. Yeah, so we're, 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 we've, just taken, we've just taken a bit of a detour there. But So Passion of Joan of Arc, um, you probably won't ever see it again unless they release it on some sort of DVD. But do keep an eye out for it. Will Gregory and Adrian Utley uh, with Charles Hazelwood. Well, I hope it's Charles. It's hey, Mr. Hazelwood, who is the conductor. And I guess he, he's, he's the one who keeps it all in sync. Uh, you might get a chance to see that around somewhere in a film festival near you perhaps if uh, they get the budget to fly all those people out there and what have you but yeah good fun um we're heading for five o'clock i wonder whether whether we should uh, tackle such a large subject as the future of music because uh Tom- <laughs> thomas vent has been doing some uh, research into this and he's uh, interviewed a lot of people about uh the future of music and uh, uh one of them was uh, the propeller heads guy uh mr ernst Nast Booth, I can never pronounce his name. That's terrible of me, isn't it? I, I, I'll play a little bit and then we'll see if we can pick it up. So, if you take a camera and you point it at someone and you take a picture, you will really feel that that is your picture. It's my creation. And the camera might be totally automatic. It will set the lighting, it will set the focus, it might do other things. You still feel it's your creation. It's not that way with music. If you make a computer... Uh, do too much of the work, you very quickly run to, into a situation where you feel it's not my, it's not really my thing. So I, I think that there will be continue to be uh, um, sort of um, a demand uh, or a requirement rather to invest 
if you want to make music, even if it's with a computer, even if it's with high tech, uh, there's going to be a requirement that you invest in learning and practicing and training and doing something and failing and doing it again and getting better. I'll stop there because he goes on at length about various other things as well, which is a very interesting piece. It's a great um, series of interviews uh, by Thomas Vent. Uh, Skating Dog Media, if you look it up on uh, YouTube, there's a whole series of clips. And he talked also talked to Craig Anderton and various other people. But I, I thought Ernst had some very uh, good points. One of the points that, that there's no real subversive, there's no subversive music anymore in the way that perhaps, you know, in the back in the old days, music was seen as quite a subversive cultural thing. It's not quite seen in the same way. And also that, um, you know, also it's still very emotive. It's one of the few arts that people will fight about if they disagree about the kind of music or, you know, the whole mods and rockers thing or, you know, the spandus and the, the new romantics and the whoever else it was, you know, it's just, it, it was just a very interesting set of. Uh, chat about it and I wondered whether or not um, there were any resonances with uh, perhaps any of your thoughts in there I don't know Rich did you get a chance to check out any of these interviews yeah I watched Ernst mm. I didn't want um, because I kind of sort of know uh, Ernst at a distance we've never actually met but we had an internet relationship now for like 16 years because we both used to beta test Cubase in the uh, mid 90s Ah, okay and he was on the team uh, he was also involved in the manual writing and things like that um so, um, uh, what? I, boy, this is such a broad thing. I, I, it's kind of settling into what it will be, which is to say that it's returning to a place in its in the broader society where it's still special, but it doesn't kind of run things the the way the post Beatles era did for forty years. And I think it's kind of settling back into society, and it's uh, we all know all the reasons why it's getting harder and harder to earn a living there. To a great extent, it'll be self-supporting in the educational area because people will still want to learn how to do things, even though they might not know why they want to learn how to do them until they find themselves teaching them themselves. But um, it's it's you know it's going to narrow to a certain point and then it'll stay there. And I suspect that point will be kind of like the way music existed in the culture in the earlier parts of the 1900s. I wonder if there's a sort of paradigm. It's interesting that he talks about, you know, the using of using a digital camera or something that's sort of very man, very automatic, and the sort of the idea of ownership of that creative. Well, essentially, the creative moment is knowing when to press the button once. You know, whether there's a, a, a Dave's poised over the copy of Rebirth there on the iPad <laughs> just to demonstrate. But um, it, it's interesting that this whole idea of, you know, the technology can make. Uh, everything easier for us so you know we could almost sort of join the dots and create some music or have the computer take a lot of the work away from us but in a lot of ways we don't want that to happen so it's quite a challenge for software developers such as propellerheads and ableton and all those people to kind of create something that doesn't take too much control but still allows us without getting too complicated to do things more easily or whatever i mean one of the things he suggests you know about it is you know there's a lot of stuff going in uh, propellerheads record but even though it seems simple, there's a lot of comple- complex things going on, and it's uh, that that part of it interested me a bit. That there's there's this ability to enable us without taking over too much. Or do you think those two things can't coexist? Well, in in my case, the democratization of the process of making music has been going on for a long time, and part of where we're at is the result of it. And yet, 
the toothpaste is out of the tube, and I'm not suggesting that it would necessarily be better if it were back in the tube. So in the case of Ernst's software in particular, he's done a price-performance thing between reason and record that makes it even more democratized to get very very good professional sounding results because now now the 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 area between what is professional recording stuff and consumer recording stuff is grayed sufficiently to the point where somebody with any modicum of experience and talent could very easily use pieces that are considered consumer gear and get very very good results and has been done for many years Mm. so the democratization of the process and how that contributes to how we got to where we are is one very, very broad and discussable subject. Um, Perhaps too broad. <laughs> well, it's, and that's even a subtopic within this what's going to happen to the music, you know, yeah, how, how does the business yeah, settle into our lives? So, and, and, and then is, does music have any intrinsic value as a commodity anymore? Because if it did, people would still be supporting album sales with tours instead of supporting themselves with tours. Um, Mm. So there's so much of it that's changed and it's settling in, in such an interesting way right now. There's just not a lot of gigs for a lot of people. And yet there is this burgeoning live rock and roll scene around me. I see. I guess it's the event, isn't it? It's the event and And, the happening. Yeah, but it's, it's getting difficult. And as the financial situations, uh, are becoming more difficult. I think it's even harder to populate those places, and the more of them I go to are more empty, it seems. So Hmm. we'll see where it's going, but it seems to be settling back into a sort of pre-Beatles societal placement. I'd agree with that, I I think. I've always said it's strange to hear you talking about it in those terms. I've always seen that as... uh, as, as a kind of parallel between the way a human being goes through youth and then middle age and then settles down and then dies. Uh, and for me, being born in 62, I would look back at the Elvis days, for instance, as being the early teens of, of, of music's life. And that when we hit the 80s, we'd set into boring early 30s uh, mundanity, which was then followed by a, a sort of midlife crisis uh, and now a settling down, which is what we're going through. Um, musically, I didn't actually mean that to be funny, although it did sound funny. Um, but I think, it, it, as with a lot of things, it's now been around for a long time and it's not such an amazing thing anymore to hear a youth screaming about his angst because we've been hearing it from every generation of youths since the We sort of know 60s. about angst now. Yeah. We know about it all. You know, we we know about everything that music brings us, and now we have. I was playing somebody, a bit of an artist that I'm working with recently that I've just finished working with, uh, a breaking new British female singer, um, and they said it just. I, I, I can't really see what this is. You know, it's good quality music, but I can't really see what she's saying or what it's doing or and why is it like this? And then I reeled off a whole list of people who, and, and the British music industry particularly, band wise, these successful artists at the moment are all coming out of one particular um performing arts school and they are all being taught the same methods and it's all very good quality i mean you know i don't want to start naming names but there's some hit artists and they're writing very good quality songs that sound a little bit like hits that hall and oates may have had in the early 70s or but they're they're kind of method learning and and some people, you know, the artsy people who I work with are complaining about that. Other people uh, who are less artsy are saying, it's great, there's all this good music about. 
um, I think it's just you know it's got it's it's got diluted as everything does. The more public it becomes, the more like diluted it becomes, and the less relevant um, socially it becomes. Because it's just another consumable piece of entertainment. Yes, commodity, I suppose. I know, Dave. I mean, perhaps moving it back to the idea of kind of creating the the complexity or the ability to make software and those kind of things for creation more musical. You know, because obviously you could sit there and design a piece of software, but oh, be great! It can do this, it can do that, it can do that. But does it need to? You know, what are the bits that you throw out, thinking, well, actually, that's not really important because you know. It doesn't help me make any good music, but it looks nice, or whatever. I think you've always got to marry the kind of technical aspect with the musicianship. And if you're lucky, you can do that. There are an awful lot of people who make very, very technical products that musician looks at and goes, uh. Whereas actually, sometimes the simpler the better. But I can tell you, what is the future of music? The future of music is... Fifteen years ago, acid! No, I mean, I don't. I, I, don't, I don't even think about it anymore. I honestly don't. I'm very fortunate in the fact that, you know, we get to make stuff that I want. And if I'm working in a particular environment, I go, well, it would have been really useful if we'd had that. And then I can go to Chris and go, does that make any sense? And he'll do some numbers on the back of a fag packet and sometimes it works and often it doesn't. I think you should modify that cigarette packet for our uh, American listeners. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean... It's it's interesting. There must be. I mean, there is a creative cycle, isn't there? There is a sort of cultural cycle to all of the things. And you know, by its very nature, you know, we are of a certain age group, so we're perhaps not aware of what might be going on. You know, amongst teenagers and what is bubbling up. There might be something about to explode in a massive sort of cultural rainbow of. Uh, needs it. Uh, but but we don't know. I think know. it needs it. I don't, I'm not sure whether it'll ever happen, but you know, I, I think to an, to an extent it, it needs it. People are just or kids. In particular, I mean, you know, I've got a 14-year-old daughter, and she is pretty spoon-fed. She hears what, you know, she hears from me, which is one which is one aspect of it, but she hears what she hears on the TV, and that's another aspect. It's another reason why the net's so good, because, you, you know, there are so many niches that you can kind of pick and choose from a listener's perspective. But I don't know where it's going to go. I just find it slightly frustrating that I know so many fantastic musicians, and a lot of them are... You know, it's hard to make a living. Well, maybe that's the, the, the thing that they need to do, or one you know wi- that needs to be done is just to learn how to make a living from this sort of new economy. I mean, you know, it's just yeah, a way, that's the art. That's what's going to happen, isn't yeah. it? But I so, so, so totally and utterly disagree with Ernst Nathorst's Boos's idea that music will no longer have a political bias because the political bias that he's talking about is probably punk and that music style with political bias came about in uh, reaction to something that was happening in Britain in the 1970s. And to think that we will never go through that kind of transition again and that musicians will never feel the need to be outspoken again is kind of... Well, I don't know. It's kind of, you know, condensing music into the only important things that have happened in music have been in these last sort of 50 years. And that's just not true. Because there have been other musical eras with huge political bias. And there will be other musical eras in the future with huge political bias. The way we make music will constantly evolve and change. And... The things that musicians feel the need to say and to air and to get out of their system and the message 
that they have will also evolve and change over time. And music seems to be a way of airing those kind of poetical viewpoints about the world which possibly couldn't be written in poetry or prose or published in the in the press so putting those kind of viewpoints to music uh, is a vehicle for people to have that kind of say in the world about what they feel is important and yeah sure there's nothing much going on at the moment but it will come to a point where we have a big political standoff and who knows what's going to happen with the British government we still haven't decided yet and what effect that might have on our communities and what effect that might have on our lives and where that might take us in terms of musical uh, musicians musical musicians <laughs> in terms of people wanting to vent their anger about what's going on in the world so there you go that's my take on it so i'm absolutely nothing against ernst nathost boost boost or whatever his name is um i just think that that's short-sighted what he said now i know that sounds harsh but well there you go <laughs> thank you for the iphone software but sorry i don't agree with you Interesting. I, I, perhaps a bit of a large and philosophical topic to end on, but um, some great points there. Thank you very much to everybody for your input. That was great. And I suppose we're sort of heading towards the goodbyes and thank yous. So uh, uh, I don't know if, uh, Rich, um, it's very kind of you to join us here um, from Connecticut. I guess you'll be you, you off to work in the studio, going to record some uh, vocalists without splitting the uh, the signal, of course. <laughs> By the way, I wanted to amend that. I might take multiple paths. I just won't. I try not to split a single path. Um, uh, what Purist. am I doing today? Uh, yeah, I really. Uh, well, I can be. I can be. I'm in the studio. I, I must say, I know we're trying to wrap up, but when I read that, I was kind of thinking, well, how did you do it? Because if he split the same signal five times, then he's lost the game from the off, you know, because they're right. all rubbish. In a patch <laughs> whether they're, whether That's they're why he got fired. That's probably, she probably went, oh my God, what do you do? Yeah. Do you not use an active split? <laughs> right. Like I said, if he brings it into a, channel, a decent channel console and buses it, then that's one yeah. thing. I can only apologise because the audio you're hearing in your headphones, chaps, has been split and multiplied <laughs> several times. I've got a headphone splitter feeding an, a, a little mixer, which is a, then splitting the headphones again. And, you know, so I, I just feel shamed. No I feel ashamed. I feel dirty, uh, dirty and soiled. just soiled. And I'm really sorry. <laughs> I just probably want probably balanced properly if they're split within a box, right, as opposed to on a patch point. <laughs> well, anyway... I take your point, and I do thank you very much for that. So I forgive you. Oh, okay. Thank you, Rich. <laughs> thank you very much, Rich. Uh, Rich, Good of fun. course, myspace.com forward slash Hiltonius and uh, Facebook my, uh, slash Hiltonius. Thank you very much for joining us, and uh, it's been a pleasure as always. Great. Thank you. And um, to my guests in the studio, uh, say thank you very much to Dave Spears, g4software.com. Thank you very much. Imposca 2 coming. Coming. Uh, and also to Andy Sherto for joining us uh, on his only day off between numerous front of house gigs with uh, very big numerous bands. Numerous unknown people. <laughs> numerous unknown um, people. Yeah, currently working with a girl called Lissy, L-I-S-S-I-E. Check it out, it's rather good. Okay, well, can people find that on... Uh, she was on Jules Holland last week, it will be on YouTube. If you Google Lissy, L-I-S-S-I-E, you will find it. Uh, an interesting mix of uh, old 
um, old methods as we were just talking about and new methods which we were also just talking about well thank you very much and we'd also like to say thanks once again to our show sponsors Uh, if you want to check back um, see what they're up to Uh, I said a lot about it in the ad in the middle my, uh, sonicstate.com forward slash Yamaha is where you can get to it. Uh, some great stuff over there. Uh, that was Sonic Talk number 175. It's a wrap. So here's a message for the listeners. I really want to invite you to make comments on the show. And it's so easy to do, especially if you've got an iPhone. In the iPhone, all you have to do is click on the voice memo application. You can record your comment. And when you've finished recording your comment, you literally click on the share button and you can email your comment directly to Nick. And when Nick's got your comment, it's so easy for him to just fly it into the show. And it would be lovely to have some audio feedback from the people out there to find out what works for you about the show, what doesn't work for you about the show, whose opinion you like, whose opinion you don't like what you'd like to see or hear more of, what you'd like to see or hear less of, what, 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 what works for you?